welcome to episode 16 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews really do help new listeners find our show. You can also leave comments on our site, techdoneright.io, and we have a weekly newsletter where you can find interesting stories, podcast news, and some essays from me. You can subscribe to that at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. Thanks. Today on the show, we have Nadia Ekbal. Nadia works at GitHub and is the author of Roads and Bridges, The Unseen Labor Behind Our Digital Infrastructure, which is a white paper about open source. We talk about open source at a big picture level, how it's changed over the last 10 or 15 years. Is it sustainable? What makes it sustainable? Along the way, Nadia reassures me that open source makes sense economically, which was kind of a relief. Uh, so I hope you enjoy. Nadia, would you introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, I'm Nadia. Um, I work on open source initiatives at GitHub and have spent some time writing, thinking, and talking about how we build and sustain open source projects. Right. So the first thing I read of yours, I think, was about a year and a half ago, you wrote a story that got out a lot about the hidden infrastructure of open source and uh, the hidden fragility of it. And you came to that uh, through looking for fund VC funding, do you want to talk about how you started researching the open source community in general? So I came at it after having left a previous job in venture capital. And while I was there being on the funder side, I did a lot of thinking around what do we fund in technology and why do we fund it that way? Because the predominant source of funding in software in particular is still venture capital. Um, and so when I left, I was starting to think about, well, what are other things that can't be funded by venture capital because venture requires specific outcomes. Um, and what are we missing? And I actually didn't land on open source for a couple of months. Um, I spent some time just like drawing up a list of all the things I could think of, um, all the projects I could think of and people and just cold emailing people and trying to, you know, hear their stories, hear about how they were supporting themselves or not. And I had to cross a lot of things off that list but was looking sort of for a coherent thesis. And some of the things I didn't cross off on that list were open source projects. And I had actually thought that they would probably be the least interesting area because everyone always said open source is really well supported and it just kind of works and people just build it and it's fine. But when I was talking to specific maintainers about it, I didn't get that story at all. I heard from a lot of people that they were really overwhelmed and started diving deeper into that, asked them for references, asked for other people to talk to and realized that there was a very interesting story around open source and how it wasn't getting supported. Um, and so yeah, I started writing about it. Yeah. One of the things I think that you get at that is really interesting is how the relationship between open source and the, re and the rest of technology changed in the mid 2000s. And I've been a professional developer since about 1998 and I've gone all the way from at my first web job, like they wouldn't let us use open source tools. I wanted to use Python and they were, they wouldn't <laughs> let me use Python because they didn't know who to sue if something went wrong. And I, I wish I was making that up, but uh -huh. I'm not all the way to like having you know, largely a, a professional career based on rails and Ruby and RSpec and all of these great open source tools. And what do you think changed in 2006, 2007, 2008 that put the infrastructure under more pressure? Um, so I think we saw a more standardized way of how people were building and contributing to and discovering open source. So there's GitHub, obviously, but before then there was also SourceForge. 
and also related resources and tools like Stack Overflow. And so before then, you might have had products that are being managed through a random mailing list, or you had to just sort of like go on their website and download the project. They were all over the place, right? And once you had a central platform where you could kind of jump from project to project, and the way you contribute is exactly the same, the version control that you use is exactly the same, the you know issue tracker is exactly the same, it suddenly becomes a lot easier for people to consume more rapidly. And I think that's true for any other kind of content consumption in the past you know, 10 years or so and how that's all been changing. Um, so I actually see a lot of parallels between what happened in open source and what's happened in, let's say, social media or videos or blogging or anything else. We're just able to consume content more rapidly. But with open source, of course, it's not just about passive consumption, but it's also about people getting involved in the production. And I think that's where we've hit some sort of resource constraints because, yeah, I mean, what I saw was that as projects were being used more and more, the number of maintainers was not actually increasing per project. So things got out of whack. In my own career, I've seen that in a couple of different stages. Like when I started learning to program, open source was not a thing that was accessible to, I mean, it existed because the the Unix projects and, and the things like the GNU stuff that all of this sort of is an outgrowth of existed. But if you were like, a random high school kid with an Apple II, you know, in suburban Chicago, you had no access to that at all. <laughs> and to me, like, that, that, this is amazing. Like, this is a tremendous thing that's happened that when you, if you learn coding today, you have this tremendous ability just to access, just to read code. Like, you know, source code was like mythical when I learned. <laughs> Uh, to develop. It's a good thing, I think. Yeah, overall, it's been it's an amazing thing. And then you get to, you know, I went through the SourceForge era and, and, source, and, and the era where you would, like, download a, a tar file and try to make it and cross your fingers and hope that it worked, which is, you know, something that improved dramatically. But then you start to see, I, I, like, I think that, that from my perspective, what happened happened in two stages. Like, there was an early stage in, like, around the... 2000, where first the LAMP stack got popular and then Rails got popular, and suddenly you had the capability for businesses to get built on open source in a way that was orders of magnitude easier than it had been in the past. And then following that, you had GitHub and all sorts of people coming in to fill this sort of social coding need now that there was all of this economic interest around it. And as you say, though, the, the infrastructure, the person infrastructure, the people running it, like that has not scaled in the same way. Yep. And, you know, you, I know a couple of the people that you quoted in, in the original article about, you know, maintainers getting overwhelmed. And I've certainly talked to people who are certainly one reason why I uh, have never really run an open source project myself. Like it seems thankless and, and uh, painful. Where do you see this going? Like, I, it seems to me that the current situation is not sustainable. So how do you see this changing? Well, so my views on it have, I think, evolved over the past two years or so, which is probably a good thing that your views change. When I started, I was really focused on the funding aspect. And I still think funding is really important, but kind of difficult to get at before we've established a lot of other stuff in the foundation. So I've been thinking more broadly around sustainability and what does it mean for a product to even be sustainable? It's not necessarily, I think, that the maintainer gets paid a salary to work on it full-time because there are some maintainers who don't want to work full-time on their projects. And then it becomes a question of who pays the salary and what do they, Right. what are their goals? Right. 
But I think the question is more, for the project's perspective, is the project moving along and developing at the rate that it should, given its importance to the rest of society? Um, and then there's a question of, are the maintainers who are primarily responsible for it, are they happy? And so if you look at it from that lens, money's one piece of it. A lot of it is just like best practices around both managing the project and managing the community. And I realized that even that was not really a given among open source projects. There were, I noticed that open source communities are really siloed. So someone who's working in a Ruby ecosystem is not talking to someone working on like Linux kernel. And uh, when you see those people get in a room and talk to each other or talk online to each other, um, it's really cool because they are facing a lot of the similar struggles, regardless of the code that they're writing. The way they're thinking about managing their projects and their communities is really quite similar. Um, and there's lots to learn from each other. So I've seen that as sort of like the first, before we can even talk about on a grander scale, you know, how do these things get funded and supported and systemically thought about? It's making sure that people have a common shared understanding of how projects get run. How do they scale? When is it okay to step down? When is it okay to, you know, step away, take vacation on, on a project? I mean, things like that people aren't even really talking about. What do you see that the successful projects are doing here that other projects could learn? So there are a couple of things. One is, and this really depends on the scale or scope of your project, but maintainers can get overwhelmed when they start to feel like they're the ones who have to respond to everything um, and have to do everything themselves. And I think that's a natural feeling, especially if, let's say, you author the project and then it becomes really popular. And at first you're responding to one or two issues and then suddenly it's like 100 issues and you you kind of just naturally grow into that role. But where I've seen maintainers be successful is to try from a very early stage just to push that work off onto the contributors and say, well, you know, if you reported this issue and you're also not taking steps to fix it, unfortunately, I don't have time to fix it. So I'm going to have to close this and being okay with that. And that's like a really scary thing because people get upset sometimes when you don't do that. Yeah. My friends who are maintainers often talk about how as consumers of open source, people often have unreasonable or entitled levels of expectation of what the maintainers are actually going to do. You actually write about this a little bit when you were talking about the myth of the bazaar, that we, we, we kind of have this feeling that every open source project has a battalion of volunteers making all the bugs shallow. Um, but in fact, in most cases, they don't. It's one person working in their spare time. And I think we can aspire to projects that can get a lot of contributors are, that's awesome. Um, not every project is going to get that. Frankly, like a lot of them just have one or two people that work in them full time. Even very popular, widely used, still come down to only a couple of people actually writing the code. And then it's sort of like, what is that person's constraints? And if they do want to work on it more full time, or they want to bring on more resources, then I think that's where you start exploring the path of funding or getting more dedicated support or dedicated maintainers. Um, if they can't or don't want to do that stuff, then honestly, if they don't have time to work on the project, then that's the constraint, right? Like their time is the resource constraint. So it's getting them comfortable with saying no to things and closing things that they don't want to work on unless someone else wants to work on them. Right. And there are a lot of cases where money doesn't solve that problem. Like a lot right. of these things, the money isn't going to support a full-time user. And if time is the constraint, then time is still the constraint, even if there's bug bounties or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an ideal world I'd like us to aspire towards where projects that are really, really important and where there is a desire to work on it full time, like there should be financial resources available for that. I think it's just figuring out those channels is going to take a long time. 
Yeah, we're starting to see things like Ruby Together and Python Software Foundation, and, and Python Software Foundation has been around for a long time, but attempts to sort of put some predictable structure behind these really important community infrastructure projects. Yep. Do you see any of those that are being, like, I see a lot of efforts in that respect that are, like, intermittently successful. Like, what do you, do you see some areas there that are, are working? I think much like what happened with, let's say, open source development itself and how GitHub helps standardize that behavior. We're going to have to see some sort of standardizing of how things get funded. Because right now there's a lot of random successes or outlier successes where someone happened to run a crowdfunding campaign and it worked great, or someone happened to get a large corporate donation and that was great. One platform I think has been showing potential for that is Open Collective, which is a, a platform where projects can put their, they can start a collective and people can donate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone can donate to that. Anyone can see the, the money that gets pulled out. And Where is that being used? Um, it's being used by, I think they have like 200 open source projects on there. There are a couple of great examples of projects that have managed to raise a lot of money on there. But in the end, it still comes down to whether that project has a dedicated evangelist or someone who's dedicated to thinking about fundraising or community. And so I think that's kind of the lesson for me is like projects need to be able to think about those kinds of roles. Yeah, it seems to me like there's a real danger zone in these projects that a lot of times the original maintainer creates the project to scratch their itch, as the saying goes, and because they just like building new stuff. And then as the project matures... The original maintainer is no longer as interested because the mature project is not the original maintainer's not the, the the original maintainer doesn't get out of bed in the morning to work on a mature project. They get out of bed in the morning to work on something brand new, but at that point the project is stable and is building users and building the kind of work that the original maintainer doesn't want to do. And at that point it seems to me like a lot of projects get into trouble. Well, I think just the work changes. So how I would primarily define a maintainer is someone who is starting to take on aspects of work that aren't just writing code. So if you're starting to spend more time reviewing other people's code or, I don't know, writing documentation or triaging issues that come in, that's all kind of maintainer type work. And I think it's perfectly valid if people start to get involved in projects or start their own projects for very different reasons. It might be because, like you said, they're scratching their own itch or they thought it'd just be fun to get into open source and you know, build a reputation or whatever that is. And once those benefits kind of max out, um, you're doing a very different kind of job. And I think that's a time where it's okay to step down or find someone else who enjoys doing that kind of work or just find ways to limit the work that you do so that it's still enjoyable. Yeah, I find a lot of projects don't plan for that kind of succession that eventually it just builds up and builds up and the, the maintainer just sort of rage quits. Yeah. And somebody hopefully picks it up. Some people have made the argument that it seems scary to step away because what if nobody picks it up? But then often somebody does. Um, I I think there's too many different kinds of projects and kinds of ecosystems to be able to make that a rule or not. But it is interesting for me to think about like what happens if you step away and will the spirit of open source survive where someone else just (laughs) picks up that project and wants to be involved with it? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've had, you know, there have been a couple of outlier cases in the Ruby community. There was, you know, of course, Why the Lucky Stiff, who basically pulled all of his projects offline. But many of which were, the ones that were important were picked up by other people who grabbed copies of it. Or, you know, we have cases, we've actually, you know, unfortunately had cases where the original maintainers have passed away. And then there's no, that actually turns out to be very complicated. Yeah, it does. 
because there's really no mechanism to it. There's almost like no expectation that that's going to happen. And it becomes very, very hard for somebody to pick up that project. Yeah. I think that's another argument just for resilience with projects. I mean, even before any situation like that happens, there should be at least two people with commit access or admin access. And yeah, think about stuff like that is important. Yeah, but as like I, I see the the analogy to software development that I see here sometimes is that you know a lot of times in software development what happens is you underbuild at the beginning because it feels like overkill to mm. heavily engineer something that's just starting and I, I think I see that in a little bit of open source projects too that it, it seems like crazy to put in all of this personnel infrastructure uh, and then by the time you realize that you need it it's kind of too late you needed to put it in place months ago yeah I think it's hard it's something that's hard for me coming in as an outsider that from my perspective, I kind of just went out and like researched a whole bunch and was like, okay, I see the patterns and here are like the things that we could be doing. But that's also really overwhelming to, you can't just kind of be like, Oh, ideally in a perfect world, you would have all these things set up and all this infrastructure and, you know, all these like admins and whatever, but it's like, you know, in reality, this isn't even probably someone's full-time job. So how do you make that stuff how do you take those learnings and then figure out how to incorporate them in ways that don't feel overwhelming? I mean, my experience trying to explain open source ecosystem to people who are not developers is that, that like people are kind of amazed that it exists. <laughs> I was amazed when I realized <laughs> how exactly it all worked. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it wasn't exactly a planned system. No. <laughs> and and there's like two ways. Like one of them, like I think about the person that I was alluding to in my first job who, you know, just was like, who do you sue? Like he was a salesperson and a business person and very good at those things. And the idea that like people would just give away valuable tools for free, like I almost want to say offended him on a deep level. Like he was just <laughs> kind of kept looking for the catch. And I do wonder a little bit about, on sort of a big picture economic level, like whether any of this makes sense. Like, it does actually. (laughs) uh, So, drawing upon my, I guess, I'm sure I took some econ class in college or whatever, but so there's a a matrix of any like consumable good, um, and you have things that are, I'm going to go deep into the econ. So, there's like (laughs) things that are um, excludable and not excludable, and then rivalrous and non rivalrous. A public good is something that is both non-excludable and non-rivalrous, which means um, when other people use it, it doesn't deplete the resource. Um, so non-excludable, like, okay. Yeah, so uh, I think it's non-rivalrous. Non-rivalrous, okay. So yeah, like with so- like you can use this piece of software and so can someone else, and that doesn't diminish your ability to use it. Okay. And then non-excludable is whether you're able to limit access to it or not. So like air <laughs> that we breathe, like I can't really limit whether you can breathe the air or not. But software could be excludable or non-excludable depending yes. on how you structure it. And that's the question. So there's, and so if you think about it in this matrix, there's like, there is actually a, like an economic place for <laughs> open source software and how we think about it and how we support it. Um, if you think about it as a public good that if in theory, at least how it stands right now, um, it's non-rivalrous and non-excludable. And then so the question is, could you change it so that it becomes excludable and you would charge for access or whatever? That's never really felt right to me. I think because open source is successful because it's non-excludable. So I, I know some people want to go down that route. I, so one thing that's come out for me is there is a difference between resource constraints in consumption and resource constraints in production. And people consuming open source, it, like that is a public good. And I think it's actually quite fine the way it is. 
the part where I think maintainers get overwhelmed is where people are coming on the production side and right. overwhelming them with like support requests and issues and, and bugs and things like that. So, and that makes software kind of a unique good compared to a manufactured good or the kinds of things yes. that like traditional economics would think about. Yeah. And I'm realizing actually like people don't really understand how it works. So all the research that's been done on this was on, there's like a class of information goods like software or let's say music or whatever, or books where the good is information. But most of the research that's been done on it has was done on like f- when they were physical objects. So when you had like a CD of software or a CD of music or a physical book, then it's more clear how someone is paying for access, right? But there isn't a lot of information right. or th- or research on like how do we do that when everything is digital? Yeah, I don't think economics is completely adjusted to marginal cost <laughs> of consumption being zero. At it's all. amazing. In my dream world, more people would be experimenting with how do you think about limiting access on the production side. I don't know. It's it might be crazy, but we we just sort of assume that, you know, anyone should be able to file a bug. Um anyone should be able to submit a PR. What if they don't? That doesn't violate the definition of open source. What if you had to be a member? Yeah, what does that look like? And I know that's there's scary implications there too, but Sure. There are a couple, I mean, certainly there are cases that come to mind where there's an open source version of the tool and then there's a commercial version of the tool which has among other things, support, paid issue support, uh, and then the commercial version of this tool supports the open source. Yep. It's a tricky model, but I've seen it work. Yeah. Uh, a sidekick is the one that comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of the early things that I read about, like, economics and open source talked about the reputational economy, which I don't think really gets at why people... I mean, it gets at it a little, but I don't think it's really, like, it's not a sustainable basis for building open source. And I don't think it really explains, for instance, why Facebook open sources react. Like, Right. It's not for reputation. <laughs> right. Facebook yeah. doesn't need the reputation. We still don't have great vocabulary for distinguishing all the different kinds of behavior that happen within open source. So I think reputation still plays in for a new contributor or even why someone might open source their own project as an individual. Sure. But like you said, a company is going to do it for de- very different reasons. It's more for, I think, either, well, you could say for brand reputation. I think that still plays in sometimes. If it's a project they're really serious about, then it's trying to achieve like market dominance by giving something away. And then there's a question of, well, why does someone continue to maintain a project even after their reputation has sort of like the benefit has maxed out? And that I think we don't really understand. And that's where I think money kind of can play in more. Yeah, well, I mean, I look at, at Rails, which is the open source project that I'm probably, you know, I've spent a tremendous amount of time in that community. 37 Signals Basecamp has gotten tremendous value from the open sourcingness of Rails. Some of it is reputational. Some of it is just that they get a better tool to build with. And, and some of it, I think, is that they, it establishes them as a serious technology company in a way. So I guess that's reputational, but in a somewhat different way. Like they, they don't need it for their business per se anymore. Yeah to be open source, but they still get tremendous value from it in a kind of an intangible way, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of just noodling through this. I think no one really knows right now, which is makes the whole thing very exciting. I mean, if you ask them, they would say that they open sourced it because they get they felt like they would get tremendous amount of value from it being adopted in the beginning and also because they thought it was the right thing to do. Like that there were tremendous benefits to the community that would come from having a tool like that be available. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, it would have benefits to them that they would have a better tool to develop in if they didn't have to work, you know, depend on their own uh, silo. And it probably, I mean, continues to be an asset to them even now. 
I mean, it seems to like they, they certainly, you know, su- they certainly support it and, and to some extent support the community that has grown up around it. So you started this project in part to try to explain to non-developers like what the state of the developer ecosystem was like, do you feel like that part has paid off? Do you feel like there's an increased awareness in the non-developer part of this ecosystem about the importance of open source and how it needs to be supported? Not as much as I expected when I, I think I started. And I think that's okay because I realized even among developers, there still wasn't a shared awareness or understanding, um, both people who contribute to open source, but then also like people who consume it, like non-open source developers. What did you find in the developer community as being the misperceptions? There are a lot of people who are excited about if you you know mention open source or developer, pretty much everyone's going to go, oh yeah, it's it's you know so great. I use open source software all the time. Um, so there's you know a positive glow or feeling about open source, but a lot of people use it and don't always realize what's going on under the hood. So there's a lot of room for effort of even just companies and developers that use open source but don't participate in the production to understand what's going on behind the scenes and just create a little bit more awareness and empathy for that. And hopefully offering of resources, which we're seeing some of. So I think that the software thing, I have a note here in my questions note, and I'm not completely sure where I got it from, but I'm going to try anyway. There's a concept in uh, software development that was described as worse is better. Um, it was originally explained, it was originally coined to describe why the C family of languages beat the Lisp family of languages for developer uh, share. And the idea was that the Lisp languages were so good that people, they were so easy to build up your own code that there was no real incentive to share code because it was easy enough to build your own. Hmm. Uh, whereas the C family, the open source community developed there in part, I'm probably uh, slightly, I'm paraphrasing an argument made by somebody who's smarter than I am, so that's always dangerous. But <laughs> in the C community, uh, where it was harder because C was a lower level language, there was more of an incentive to build up these shared libraries. And ultimately, those shared libraries had a strong community building incentive that made those tools, even though the individual languages weren't as powerful, over time, the tools became more powerful. And I was wondering, as the open source languages and tools get better, if there's kind of a danger or or, or how that might apply to the open source ecosystem as the sharing tools get better and better, Hmm. whether there's any kind of effect that you see or have thought about in terms of that minimizing the amount of sharing between ecosystems or, or between projects. Interesting. I think better is a pretty subjective term. So I, I mean, I can't imagine a world in which people just sort of say, oh, we're done and kind of walk away. I think people, it's more, if you look kind of at the history of software development, it's more that we give people tools to think more and more abstractly about code and what they can do with it. And so they just become smarter and, you know, do more interesting things with it. So I think that's actually a really good thing. And we're not going to ever tap that out. We are seeing more fragmentation, and I think that speaks more to tools becoming more flexible and because it's easier just to tweak little things here and there and then have your own version of whatever it is exactly that you wanted, we might see more just sort of like, I mean, and I think this is just sort of like evolution of any sort of creative segment. Um, You just see more people kind of riffing off of each other's work, building things that might not get big but are good enough for them 
And I think that's all a good thing. As, as an individual tool like Rails or React gets better, the, the changes you need to make to customize them become smaller and there's less incentive to share them. Yeah, well, they might share them, but there's just so many. The analogy I always go back to, I guess when I think about it, is like when YouTube first came out, there were probably like 10 insanely popular videos that we all knew about and can think of. And now there's, and those are the ones that like went totally viral and became like part of our culture, right? And now there's so many viral videos on YouTube that like someone might have seen something that had like, I don't know, 20 million views or whatever that I've never even heard of just because there's room for more and more people to be successful without being like the most dominant technology. So I think people will continue to open source their stuff just because there's still personal reputational benefits to that. But you might find that you have like a thousand people who are excited about it and that's good enough for you. Or there might be something that like, I don't know. Yeah, a lot of people are using, but I've never heard of or whatever. Yeah. So you start to have a discovery problem too. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a bad thing. I think uh, yeah, it becomes a bad thing when for each of those situations, there's if the demand is too great on that individual creator and we're, yeah, we're not talking about how do you support this level of scale and consumption. One thing where I see like, I see like in the JavaScript community where I do think there is a a discovery problem with a lot of different kinds of tools being, you know, a lot of tools being created to solve basically the same problem and and a lot of churn. Hmm. And I do think that in that community, it sometimes acts to the detriment of the community as a whole because people are, there's not as much incentive to try something new if you think it's just going to get replaced six months later by the next thing. Like it seems to incentivize less long-term planning. In yeah. a way that's hard. Yeah. And it's a problem even beyond, even outside of software that we all have to, <laughs> all, all content is becoming disposable. And, and I think, I don't know how anyone's going to solve it yet, but I definitely, I definitely see that. Ask me about technical book sales sometimes. <laughs> Speaking of things that have gotten destroyed by open source. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I want to talk about, one of the issues that the community has is diversity, the community of open source contributors not being representative of the community of developers as a whole and sometimes being either like difficult to break in for new people, especially new people who are not like who do not match the the stereotype of an open source developer or sometimes outright hostile. Like how do you see that changing? Is improving that also one of the things that you're sort of looking at in the work that you're doing? Yes, in terms of how it affects sustainability of a project overall. I will say that although there are still a lot of behavioral problems at open source, it's a lot better than what it was like 10 or, or 15 years ago. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, there's no question about that. Yeah. Which I, I don't know. Yeah, I just think people forget that. Like people are getting a lot nicer because there is more accountability and visibility than there was. Yeah, and I actually I think that the GitHub effect of a common location has an effect on that because you yes. can actually see there, there's vi- the stuff that was off on weird mailing lists in the past. <laughs> right. Like, do we want to go back to that? Yeah. So that's I mean, I'm a yeah. part of it, but but I mean, that's not to minimize all the things that are are happening right now. And there's a couple aspects for it, for it to me. Um, one is I think there's people come into projects and there isn't a lot of context on either end for the person. So someone might come in, let's say like a maintainer might see you know a thousand issues and like they they know how they want someone to behave or what they might expect and if someone comes in and it's their first issue they've ever opened they might say something that sounds rude or um, not understand how things work and that it leads to a lot of friction on both sides and so there's a lot of just i think it's just it's really hard to be for either side i think to 
be civil when they don't always have context on each other. I think bringing in different types of skills and different types of people is really, really important for building a project out as more than just a code base. Yeah. I mean, over and over and over again, I mean, this is just like a broken record. Like I just hear projects constantly saying, we don't just want code contributions. Please like write documentation, please help like answer questions for people on Stack Overflow. Like, I mean, all these things, and that's going to require different kinds of skills than someone who just wants to come and write code. And that's why I think it's more than anything else. I think that's why it's really important to make sure that projects are welcoming to new people and give them a chance to get involved in the way that they want to get involved. Yeah, we often tell new developers that, that documentation fixes are the quickest way to break into an open source project, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're a new developer and you notice something in the setup or, or something that, that somebody else might not have noticed. But but that can vary very much by project. Like some projects are very welcoming to it and, and others are not. Yeah. What would you recommend that a project do or what do you see successful projects doing in that respect? In terms of getting people? Yeah, getting people, getting onboarding, I guess. Um, a couple of things. One is just making sure that the project's documentation is also welcoming. So there are the people who, by you know, by the time someone has, let's say, opened an issue or asked a question for the first time, there are probably like a hundred other people who might have like landed on the projects and decided it wasn't for them and left. So there's also the question of how do you capture all those people who you may never even see? So I think that's really important of just making making things seem friendly, welcoming, and allowing people to self-serve a bit. Um, and then when someone does interact on the project for the first time, having somebody respond quickly is really, really important. And I know that's also really difficult. It's kind of a, a chicken egg problem, but not hearing back from someone is probably one of the big reasons why someone will just kind of leave or the question becomes stale and they kind of move on. And then I think finding that balance between getting people to do the work themselves, but then also being able to like help them and not have them feel like they're overwhelmed, like being able to navigate that balance is important. What change would you most like to see in the next four or five years in the open source ecosystem? Oh man, four or five years. It could do so much in four or five years. (laughs) (laughs) I think from the project side, what would make me really happy is better tooling for maintainers to manage their workflow and all the things that are required to run a successful project. That's more of like, I guess, an automation thing. A shared understanding of best practices among projects and having people continue to recognize and encourage that in each other. That's sort of like within projects. And on a broader scale, I mean, I would love to just see companies, government, foundations, like people with financial resources understand that this is a problem and commit financial and human resources to supporting open source and not just sort of take it for granted that it's going to be there forever. Yeah, ideally that happens before we have the first like real disaster that happens because somebody removed a critical project. Yeah, <laughs> too late, but yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. And where can people reach you if they want to learn more about the things that you've been writing about and talking about? I guess Twitter is probably easiest. My handle is Nayafia, N-A-Y-A-F-I-A. And all of your your writings on your uh, on Medium off of your tied to your name, correct? Yep. Great. All right. Well, Nadia, it's been uh, really great. I really enjoyed this conversation, and thank you for being on the show. Likewise. Thanks for having me. 
Tech Done Right is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find Table XI on Twitter at Table XI and you can find me at Noel Rapp. The show is edited by Mandy Moore and you can reach her on Twitter at The Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io. This episode should be findable at techdoneright.io slash 16 or you can download it via whatever tool you use to listen to podcasts, which you probably know since you are listening to a podcast right now. Uh, please send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right, or you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us, and we do have a couple of developer positions open as I record this. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.